Hello everyone, uh, welcome to uh, Reading Tolkien Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Holly Ordway, who is the Cardinal Francis George Fellow of Faith and Culture for the Word on Fire Institute. And Holly, I believe that's that's the organization associated with Bishop Barron. Am I right there? Yes. 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 Because right. yes, yes. I've, I've seen a few of his um, his YouTube um, videos. I th- he, he seems to have a bit of a presence there, <laughs> um, which is interesting. So um, Holly, of course, is the uh, author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, um, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages, which is a wonderful new book that's just been published by um, the, the um, new press out of uh, Word on Fire Institute or the, the academic section of their, their press. And um, that's the first volume out of the, the academic side of the press um, and more will be will be coming. And so, Holly, look, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a great pleasure to talk to you, actually, because it's such a wonderful book and I've, I've really enjoyed reading it just to, um, to start off at, at any rate, yeah. Oh, well, it's it's my pleasure. And, of course, that's music to my ears as the author to hear that people are enjoying the book. So this is we're off to a very good start. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. And we'll get into, obviously, a, a couple of issues um, that you raise in the book. But, um, you know, I think it's um, it's a corrective in some ways to you know, a number of uh, shibboleths, perhaps, that have been <laughs> that have been um, had by Tolkien scholars perhaps and and also fans for a while um so i think in that sense um as in quite a few others it's it's very important so one question i I like to start off with um when i'm talking to scholars talking scholars is just very general question of where where do you see Tolkien studies as a, a field if you want to call it that um generally and and where do you think um do you think it's going in the right direction or again, broad question, but <laughs> just be interested in your thoughts. Yeah. Well, I, I think that Tolkien studies is in a, in a very exciting place. I think it's opening up in some pretty dynamic directions and this is really neat to see. And, you know, coming you know to Tolkien studies also from my, my grounding is also in inkling studies, broadly speaking. Um, I'm a subject editor for the journal of inkling studies. I've done mm-hmm. work on Lewis and it's interesting to see the way that um, you know the different inklings that their scholarship has sort of opened up at different times and in different places and in different ways. And I think that for you know for a while, Tolkien scholarship I think didn't quite didn't quite have much traction in academia. Had a lot of enthusiasm um, for in the first few decades from readers, but had to be always pushing against that idea of oh you know. From the from the larger culture of well fantasy that's that's not really a, a terribly important thing to be studying, but I think that's past that's well past um, and it's now especially with you know scholars like John Garth with Tolkien's um, with Tolkien and the Great War, Diana Glyer with the company they keep um, opening up some some fresh sort of avenues for the way that Tolkien related to his contemporaries and to the modern world. And then, you know, with just so many exciting lines of, of, of inquiry about, mm-hmm. about you know, all different facets of Tolkien, um, and of course made, made possible by Christopher Tolkien's just epic, <laughs> epic work, <laughs> bringing mm-hmm. his father's papers to light. 
so there's a lot more that I wish we had. I wish we had um, even something remotely close to a complete letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Walter Hooper's great gift to Lewis studies, which I think opened up Lewis studies tremendously to have the collected letters. Um, I think if we could have that for Tolkien, it would be kind of a quantum leap forward in terms of our understanding. Mm. But we've done we've we've done a lot, I think, in the last you know two decades, and especially the last decade, I think, to just open up lots of new lines of of research. And I think it's really exciting, really exciting field to be in. Yeah, fantastic. And I do want to sort of ask you about the letters, but what do you think sort of the chances are of, of a more um, extensive uh, volume or perhaps volumes ever um, seeing the light of day uh, of Tolkien's letters, that is, is that uh, something that might be on the horizon or perhaps, perhaps not? <laughs> I, hope so. um, I have, I have no knowledge. I have mm, no knowledge mm, of it. No, um, for sure. Yeah. One way or the other, but I, I hope so. I, I do. I think it would be a great gift to, to readers and, and to scholars. And yeah. And I, I think, I think the time is becoming riper as, as people are realizing, I think what a multidimensional thinker Tolkien was that, that really there's a lot that we can glean from his letters, just as we could glean so much from Lewis's letters that shed insights um, on, on his work, on his thinking. And if there's one thing that I, you know, regarding that, that I, I came to the conclusion of after doing my research for Tolkien's modern reading is that Tolkien is a genuinely good man with genuinely healthy relationships. And of course, every family has its difficulties and struggles. I mean, that's called being human, but I I think that there's a new letters would not be from a sort of voyeuristic point of view of like, Oh, let's see what skeletons might be in the closet. I don't think there are any skeletons. I think it's, uh, he has in many ways, a very normal, ordinary Mm -hmm. life, which is really refreshing, frankly. Mm. But I think even things that seem pretty trivial to, you know, conversations and letters can really shed a lot of light on creative inspiration and how he, how he engaged with the modern world and how that sheds light um, on his writings. So I have no idea, but I am mm. hopeful. Yeah. Yeah, f- absolutely. That would be, um, it would be wonderful and, and would really complement um, so much of the, the scholarship that's, that's already been done. So um, I suppose just, just briefly, and I know you've, you've spoken about this in, in various other interviews, but what sort of motivated you or how did you come to, to write this, this book um, in particular? Well, this, the, this book um, took 10 years to write. Mm, so this mm. is quite, quite a labor of love <laughs> and it came about, you know, you, you mentioned you, you called it a, a corrective and, and I think that that's accurate, but I didn't set out to do that. Mm, um, mm. Emerge out of my research. It was, it was a discovery that startled me as much as it has startled any of, of the readers. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I've, you know, I've been thinking seriously about Tolkien for more than 30 years um, and, and writing about him, you know, for a very long time. And one of the things I did, I did my doctoral thesis um, on fantasy literature. And in that context, I had looked at the fantasy literature before Tolkien and, and then at, at Tolkien's work um, mm-hmm. on his work. And one of the things that that left me with, you know, years later, I kept coming back to that and thinking, you know, there were some interesting fantasy authors before Tolkien. I wonder if Tolkien had read any of them. And I knew that, you know, he'd mentioned St. Morris. But I thought, yeah, I wonder how many of these authors had he read. And that tied in with another question, which was the persistent question of why is Lord of the Rings just so 
so popular? Why is it so meaningful to the modern world? Because if, as I thought at the time, Tolkien was primarily exclusively a medievalist, it just seemed a little kind of puzzling that this total medievalist could write a book that speaks so profoundly to the heart of, of the modern world. And so those, those two questions ended up actually meeting because I thought, oh, let me find out what he read of, of his modern literature. And I honestly did not expect to find very much because, I mean, Carpenter says in the biography, Tolkien read very little modern fiction and took no serious notice of it. And I believed him. Mm. I mean, he's the biographer. Like, why shouldn't I believe him? <laughs> yep. And so I, I, you know, I just started looking and I, I'm a, I'm a methodical researcher. I look mm. at everything when I, when I, when I do research. <laughs> I, I try to leave no stone unturned. And I made a point of looking as much as possible at primary sources, at his letters, at his interviews, um, really digging deep in archives to look at, say, interviews that have not been reprinted, looking at interviews with his students, with his family, his friends, his colleagues, anybody who could shed light on anything Tolkien had ever said that showed what he had read. Um, and again, I was being so thorough in part because I thought that there wouldn't be much to find. And so I would have to dig to find anything. And then I just kept finding more and more things that he read <laughs> and you know, ended up with you know, almost 150 different authors of 1850 onwards, yes. more than 200 books uh, that, he, that we know for sure that he knew, not speculating. And so that is what, that's what led to this book because I actually started out thinking that I was you know, just going to do a little bit of exploration of his reading. And then maybe, maybe I would look at, you know, what happened after him. And then I realized that I had way too much material. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. about halfway through that, I thought, good heavens, you know, I have evidence that shows that he did read extensively in modern literature. Humphrey Carpenter was wrong. That's simply incorrect, factually incorrect. And that led me to go back and say, where did we get this mistaken picture? Why, why did we think that he didn't read modern literature? Here's the data. How do we account for it? And that's what I spent the last few years of the project working on, trying to figure out, you know, what, how do we get this faulty picture? And then how do we put the pieces together in a way that gives us a, a more accurate, a more well-rounded picture? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and in that sense, I think the work is in part a, um, sort of a work also of historiography and, and criticism um, in, in that sense, especially, of course, um, of, of Carpenter, who you've mentioned. But um, but also the sort of, uh, I suppose, the, 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 um, the poisoning of the well that, that occurred when, when Carpenter's biography was released. And you have a nice um, discussion towards the end of the book about some of the critical um, perspectives that, um, that various scholars had on Tolkien uh, prior to Carpenter's biography coming out, and and sometimes there are comparisons to authors who, who nowadays you know we would we would think oh that's nothing like Tolkien, but um, but who prior to Carpenter were were, were, were sort of placed uh, he was placed in their company. So I, I found that I found that fascinating, um, and hopefully we're moving back to that kind of um, back to that position. Uh, as you mentioned, um, at least to some degree. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so because that that to me was illuminating. You know, to mm. go back and to look at reception history and say, okay, well, what were people saying about Lord of the Rings 
shortly after it was published, what were they saying before, before the biography, before the Inklings group study, even before the collected letters came out. And yeah, it was startling to see how readily people placed him alongside authors like Eliot's or, or, you know, other, other modern authors readily, you know, Mm. without any, without second guessing themselves without being kind of apologetic about it. They just put him right next to those authors. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really striking to me because as soon as you get the biography and the Inklings group biography, those two together were kind of a one, two, yes. um, yep. that pretty much stops. And when you do, you do continue to get scholars who notice his reading of modern literature because that's that's notable because there there's a lot of quite good work that mm. can make the connections i mean my bibliography is something like you know ten thousand words yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good work. but interestingly after carpenter's volumes came out pretty much all of these scholars they they're all convinced that they're they've got an exception well mm. he didn't like modern literature except this one thing or he <laughs> modern culture except in this one way so we've got all these people who have genuinely good insights. They're making really important connections, but they all think it's an exception to the rule. And what I realize is there is no rule. <laughs> there is no rule <laughs> with that. It's all part of a bigger picture. You know, yes, he was a definite medievalist, but he also had a, a real connection with the modern world. And that's a meaningful part. And all of these different scholars who have insights, who you know, very good insights about his engagement with modern literature, all of that has much more impact when you put it together and say, it's not an exception, folks. It's part of a three-dimensional picture. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that comes through in, in your book. Um, just on, on Carpenter, you've mentioned his sort of Inklings um, biography. And I did read that uh, quite quite a few years ago, and I seem to recall him in that book, sort of essentially making up a sort of a, a hypothetical Inklings meeting or perhaps a couple of them. Um, I, I don't know, what's your sort of take on, on that particular book? Is, is that as misleading as the, the Tolkien, um, the singular Tolkien biography, or does that have merits, do you think, or, or is, that, is that ripe to be superseded as, as well? It's, it's, it's also deeply flawed, um, interestingly, that book has been superseded in Lewis studies, I think, mm. much, much more readily. Um, it had, it has had a negative effect on Lewis studies as well, because mm. he's, yes. also, he, he says some very silly things about Lewis. Um, and he, he presents a picture of the inklings and Diana Glyer goes into this really well in her book, the company they keep. Yes. He had a really depressing effect, a flattening effect on studies of the inklings as a group because Carpenter just says, Oh, they did not influence each other. Period. Mm. No. And Glyer proves through looking at the manuscripts, looking at all sorts of archival data that, that Carpenter was simply incorrect. They did influence each other in really significant ways. And, and her work was, was actually quite influential on my work in showing me in a way that, that there was a need for a fresh looking at this, this evidence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Carpenter's perspective, um, interestingly, his, his reconstruction of the Inklings meeting is, is I think fairly accurate from what I know of <laughs> right, the <yeah>. data. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> That seems to be of an exception. Um, and part of, I think, wh- why that particular bit works is that he's actually upfront about it. And he says, this is a reconstruction. It's imagined. Yes. A mm-hmm. lot of the problem yeah. with 
both of the other the books as a whole is that he puts in a lot of his own interpretation as if it were just statements of fact. Um, so we get his reading of things. So for instance, um, his presentation of Tolkien's view on Narnia, which is partly in the biography and partly in um, the group biography, The Inklings, mm. I mean, he is so off base on that, that it's not even funny. And when you look at it, it's, it's almost completely his interpretation presented as if it were stone cold fact when it's not. Mm. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that's it. That's interesting. So I, I don't know if you've uh, read very much. Um, th this question has occurred to me because um, I, I'm just interested in, in terms of that Inklings, uh, the book that Carpenter wrote. I don't know if you've sort of read much Charles Williams and some of the other Inklings, but do you think, do you think some of <laughs> a lot, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, have they also been sort of negatively? You've mentioned Lewis um, and Lewis studies sort of being being flattened somewhat by um, by that book. But do you think that's also um, been the case with some some of the other, especially the um, imaginative writers like Williams um, as, as well? Um, or? I think a little bit less so, um, mm. because um, I think Carpenter just doesn't take much notice of them. Yeah. Uh, so they're yeah. they're somewhat side they're somewhat sidelined um, in. In the, bi in, the, in the group biography. And so, and so they, they sort of escape getting misrepresented <laughs> by being right. less attended to, uh, <laughs> which is faint praise, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so. But actually, sorry. I would add that, sorry, I would add that I think in a way, um, Carpenter's framing of the Inklings as being so dominantly around Lewis has perhaps mm. skewed a little because the uh, the Inklings was a, was quite a large group, all things considered, and yes. I do think we we've kind of missed out, you know, the contributions of Warren Lewis, for instance. I mean, he was a published writer of, of quite substantial merit, and you kind of wouldn't know that from a lot of the you know considerations of the Inklings, and you know, and, and Barfield and Williams and and all the other crew who were members of the Inklings mm. on a regular basis. So in a way, I think part of that overall distorting effect not just by Carpenter, but by lots mm. of people to just mm -hmm. zero in on Lewis and Tolkien. It, it does distort the picture slightly, I think. Yeah, for sure. I do recall a book um, from a few years back called The Fellowship. I'm not sure if you've, you've, uh, you've read that, but, um, but that, that, that sort of uh, like the Carpenter Inklings book take, seems to take a similar approach. I, I don't know if, if I, I remember enjoying that book um, and, and certainly feeling that, that it was less uh, singularly focused on, on Tolkien and Lewis um, and, and sort of gave more space to some of those other, some of those other writers, especially Charles Williams. And um, I think there's quite a lot on Owen Barfield. Um, I don't know if, 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 if that sort of thing um, or if that book in particular um, sort of helps correct things in, in your mind, but um, yeah. Yes, I, I I think it's, mm. Yeah. It's um, yes. By the Zalaski's Caroline, Philip Zalaski. Mm. Um, mm. And it's, it's a good book. Um, it's a solid, solid book. Um, they do follow Carpenter a little bit too closely in a few points. Um, they, mm. they repeat his idea about um, Narnia incorrectly. Um, but they do, as you just noted, they do give a lot of emphasis to um, Williams and Barfield. And, and that's an important corrective. I mean, there, there's hardly any treatment of the Inklings that gives a decent consideration to, uh, to Barfield. And that's, mm. you know, 
it's important. And their treatment of, of Williams is probably the, the most accurate of the of the multi-volume ones. Greville Lindup's um, one volume biography of, of Williams is is magisterial. It's the go-to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite unsettling, right. really. Um, but the uh, the fellowship is a I, I think is a is probably the best single volume book um, on the Inklings that mm-hmm. that there is. It all, yeah, it it almost made me want to go and um, go and read Williams, but I <laughs> I haven't got around to it yet. So maybe one day. Um, but he, he seems quite uh, well. His reputation is quite is that he is a quite um, obscure writer, but but um, I suppose I, I need to I need to get into him um, a bit more to 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 try it for myself. Um, but just I suppose getting back to to talking. Uh, studies and, and then Carpenter's effect on that. Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of recent, comparatively recent, um, sort of books on on Tolkien studies. For example, Tom Shippey's books, although I suppose they're they're getting they're nearly twenty years old um, now, um, take quite a defensive posture, um, you know, towards Tolkien's critics. Do you think some of that comes out of um, I suppose this sense that Carpenter creates that, that you note that that Tom sort of has somehow lacks a, um, a connection or um, interest in the modern world, and and that 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 is part of that defensiveness a little bit, um, or or do you think something else is motivating motivating that that sentiment? I think it's I, I think that's a, a very apt description um, of of the scholarship of say twenty years ago or thirty mm. years ago. Mm. And and I think it is. I mean, Shippy's work is is amazing. Those those books are are just really important. But they mm. are for now. They're not they're not recent books. Um, no. And I think there's a couple of things going on. Um, and one one of them is that you know all the way even through I would say the 1980s for sure, fantasy scholarship in general had mm. a defensive. Um, and you see it in all the monographs. Um, and that's it, it's it's an overall sense of having to defend legitimacy of talking about fantasy of anybody in any form, um, and that I think it ling- lingered on a, a good bit, and mm. even beyond the 1980s into you know further into Tolkien scholarship. Um, fortunately, that I think in the last you know couple of decades has has eased. I don't I don't see that defensive tone anymore, and I think that's part of the big step forward in, mm. in the field. Um, so I think that's partly an, you know, an ebbing in general, but I think, I think Tolkien studies probably stayed with that defensive tone a little longer mm. than <laughs> fantasy scholarship in general, which, you know, around like the nineties was, would probably be coming a little bit less defensive. And I think you're probably right that Carpenter's pretty definitive painting of Tolkien as you know, backward looking, nostalgic, disconnected from the modern world. If that's your author, it it does make you feel a bit defensive when you're mm-hmm. trying to talk about his relevance. So I, I do think that that probably contributed to, and honestly, to a kind of self-perpetuating defensiveness. <laughs> the more people talk about him as being this nostalgic, you know, you know, stuck in the mud guy, the more people feel the need to defend that, well, I'm still going to talk about this guy, but he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in, in nostalgia, this concept. I, I, I don't know if you've, um, you've listened to lectures by, for example, Michael Drought or, or a few other scholars, but they've made the argument and I tend to agree that 
that nostalgia is indeed a, a kind of central, and I think you, you do talk about this in your book, um, is a kind of central emotion or, or sentiment, if you like, in The Lord of the Rings, for example. Um, so, and, and I know Michael Drought has made the argument that, well, we shouldn't devalue nostalgia um, so much. We shouldn't just, just cede that ground to modernists or, you know, at least modern people and say, well, you know, we only the only kinds of attitudes to have about modernity are, you know, that, that we accept it, that, that we embrace it. Um, so what's your take on um, nostalgia in The Lord of the Rings in, in a kind of general sense? Well, I think that's that's a really good insight from, from Drought on that. Um, mm. because, you know, I, I would agree that there is a profoundly nostalgic um, thread in The Lord of the Rings. You know, mm. if, if we define nostalgia as the looking backward to a, a, a lost past that was better than than what we have now mm. um and that's and that's legitimate you know because there are times when you do look back at a lost mm. past and it, it was better than what you have now <laughs> and honestly part of the experience is you know as you you know grow older you know i'm, I'm middle-aged now and you know when my back is sort of creaking i might become a little bit nostalgic for when i was <laughs> in my 20s and nothing creaked and you know mm. Mm. This is, this is actually part of the human experience. Um, and I think it's interesting to know, and this is something I turned up in, in reading for, for Tolkien's Modern Reading, mm. is that a lot of the 20th century authors who are quite revered by, you know, modern critics also have nostalgic elements. You know, Graham Greene, Evil and Law, mm. yeah. um, you know, Edith Nesbitt, um, you know, lots of people. And for good reason, because... You know, in the 20th century, especially 20th century Britain, where, where mm. you know, this context, you've got a lot of disruption. You know, the, in the Industrial Revolution, you know, going further back, the Industrial Revolution, um, the enclosures of the commons, you know, had had a profoundly traumatic effect on the rural landscape and on people's lives. And then if you think about, you know, the First World War, um, you think about the Second World War, and I think for Americans at least, we sometimes miss the point that, you know, it was a lot harder for the British, you know, going through these, these experiences than, than for Americans. You know, we as a country sent our young men over to fight, but not as many. And it, and it didn't have as quite a personal connection, a personal devastation as it did on England. Um, and obviously on, on other countries of, of Europe who were involved, but so so I think there's a sense in which Tolkien's nostalgia is is realistic, if we if we can use that paradox. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it, I would I would dispute. I, I think I would share drought skepticism about accepting. I would dispute this idea that irony and parody um, are the only appropriate modes for engaging with with the modern world. Yeah. Now they're the they're the dominant modes um, after you know after the two world wars. But, but why should we concede that ground to, mm. yeah, to the modernists? And Tolkien's not willing to do that. And I think it's one of the great triumphs of The Lord of the Rings that it manages to have, um, it's what Lewis calls, I think he calls it the, the clear-eyed view, you know, between um, nostalgia and despair. I'm, yes. mangling, yeah. I'm mangling that quote slightly. <laughs> but he the middle ground because he does actually look at, destruction and despair quite 
straightforwardly. I mean, mm, you know, mm. think about Denethor setting himself on fire. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, you think, about, think about the fact that the Shire does not escape the, the touch of Mordor. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the most, I think, moving parts of Lord of the Rings is, and, and the part that is, I think, the opposed to anybody who claims that the book is, you know, simply a wishful thinking, nostalgic exercise. Frodo and Sam and the others are always looking back to when, oh, when we get back to the Shire, you know, we're stuck in, you know, in mortar. When we get back to the Shire, they have a sort of nostalgic vision of the beauty of the Shire that helps sustain them. And then they get back to the Shire and it's, the party tree has been cut down. It's full of you know, horrible people doing horrible things. It's almost a violation. Um, and it's utterly realistic <laughs> in, yeah. in a sense. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it sort of subverts easy ideas about what nostalgia means. Um, he's, he's got a profound realism, I think, at the same time that he has a, a, rec- a recognition of nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Just, I, I suppose... Turning to that idea of realism, um, which of course you, you discuss in, in your book, and also um, historical fiction, you mentioned a few authors like um, Mary Renault, uh, for example, who, whose Alexander books I've read, um, and you mentioned that Tolkien seems to have had a, a positive sort of reaction to, to these, um, and also other other books of historical fiction and um, and, and realism, I suppose. How do you think? Um, how do you think about Tolkien's reading of, of historical and, and realist fiction of the twentieth century, Mary Renault, for example? And do you think these were, um, I suppose, influential on his own fiction or thinking about fiction, or were they were they more sort of um, you know enjoyment <laughs> for, for him? I guess. Well, I think. Well, in a way, I would first say that those those two things aren't aren't quite separable. Um, no, true. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and, and, you know, whatever he's reading, if he's reading it, he values it. And if he mm. values it, then it says something about his creative imagination. Mm. Um, and mm. that's one of the things that I think, you know, it, it, everything is connected in, in a sense. Um, so even though, you know, we, we know that he liked um, uh, Renault's fiction, he was, he was delighted to get a fan letter from her. Um, mm. So we know that he, he liked these. He names um, a couple of her books as, as being ones that he particularly enjoyed. Um, what you know? What did he draw from those those particular ones? We don't know, but mm-hmm. we do know, for instance, you know, that he read. He said that he read all of the works of Sinclair Lewis, mm-hmm. who was an American realist. And in a way, that that might have been one of the, the biggest surprises for me because I hadn't read Sinclair Lewis, but I made a point of trying to read everything that Tolkien said that he read. You know, not yep. just to, know, <laughs> but to go and read it. And sometimes this was great pleasure, and sometimes it was. It was not so much a pleasure, um, <laughs> mm. and and Sinclair Lewis is not to my taste, but he was evidently to Tolkien's taste, um, and he's a he's a satirist, um, he's a he's a realist, and, and he's satirizing American small town life. Of all the things that that I can imagine, <laughs> Tolkien enjoying so much is to read multiple books of satire of American small town life, really. But he does, and he goes on, and we know this influenced him. Because he says that um, that there's a connection between Babbitt, um, mm, the character mm. the book of that name, and Hobbits. That first it's a slight sound connection, but then he goes on to say that they have the same worldview, a sort of smug bourgeois worldview, um, and and that to me says that he's really he is 
drawing from what he's reading in modern modern literature because he's able to see in this protagonist of, of an American realist satirist novel mm. a quite a deep character level connection with his hobbits. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, I was fascinated to to read about. I mean, I, I was surprised as well. Um, some of some of Tolkien's um, really interests were quite, um, yeah, su- surprising to me as well, including his love of sort of Agatha Christie and, and some of those other, um, the crime fiction stuff was interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, one other area that you look at um, in some detail is, and, uh, you know, there, there's a lot in the book, <laughs> I'll just say, um, there, there's, there's there's so many um there's so many areas of focus, but one one in particular that I'm interested in is um, Tolkien as a Catholic writer, and you know, you, I suppose, as I understand it, in terms of imaginative writers uh, or novelists at, at any rate during the 20th century, there are quite a few um, quite a few well-known. I guess you would call them realist realist novelists, n- novelists, um, Evelyn War, for example. Um, who you mentioned, um, Graham Greene, you've mentioned. Um, how do you think, I suppose, as a thinker and perhaps also as a, as a novelist per se, Tolkien fits into um, the sort of Catholic tradition in, in the 20th century? Um, obviously, he's a fantasy writer, but is there a sort of a, a deeper connection in, in that specifically, um, I guess, religious or, or philosophical sense? Um, well, that's that's a, a difficult question to tease out. Um, mm. I think, you know, I would say certainly that there is a connection because Tolkien was a devout Catholic and mm. it was very clear that that he is expressing his faith in the sort of very structure of, of what he's of what he's writing um, at a at a pretty fundamental level. That when he talks about you know Luvatar, you know the one he he means God. He means the God, the same God that he worships. Um, mm. That's that's a you know a pretty profound connection really that he he sees a continuity you know between his his imagined secondary world and and the primary world, um, but he's also quite he's also very subtle um, and I I'm a, a bit sort of fed up sometimes with with writers who try to make the Lord of the Rings into a sort of gospel tract um, you know by <laughs> saying these are all the you know A equals B and you know here. Um, it's an evangelizing tract. Well, it's, it's not, it's very deeply Catholic and it's full of um, religious themes, but Tolkien himself says that they come through in the symbolism, not explicitly. Um, mm. he's, he's doing it at a very a deep level. Um, and that's how he wants to, to communicate. And, you know, this, you know, this idea of implicit Catholicism, I think is in line with, um, the sort of 20th century Catholic um, literary approach. Mm. Uh, this isn't a line that I've, I've explored too much. This is actually something I'm I'm looking at in my next Tolkien book. I'm actually working right. a book on, <laughs> on on his faith. Um, so stay tuned, you know, <laughs> for that. Yep. But, uh, oh. but I do think it is consistent with with the larger sort of approach of of Catholic novelists, taking into account that a number of the you know, the Catholic novelists that you mentioned were sort of struggling to, 
you know, actually be Catholic. They were in and out. They were borderline, you know, and, and Tolkien always was in. He, he stayed firm, um, very consciously firm in his, in his faith. So, uh, so we're not quite comparing apples mm. to apples, but I, I think there is a consistency. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not, um, I guess, overly familiar with, with the lives of many of these other authors, but yeah, that, that's a great point. It's very interesting. You mentioned um, the Silmarillion there, or a, a few a few elements from the Silmarillion, Iluvatar, etc. And in, in the book, um, in your book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, you obviously restrict yourself mostly to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, um, which is completely understandable. Um, but what's your take on, I guess, the Silmarillion and um, how it sort of, how it fits in with, I guess, Tolkien's better, better known uh, works, if it, if it fits at all. It's obviously quite an, quite an idiosyncratic text. Um, but what's your, what's, what's your wider take on the Silmarillion? I'd just be interested to know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, in a way, the Silmarillion is what Tolkien would have called his life's work. I mean, mm, in, mm. and so the, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits are almost accidental, um, <laughs> providential accidents, I, I would say. I'm quite grateful that they happened that way. But he always viewed um, the larger epic of the Silmarillion as his big project, as his life's work. Um, and then, you know, the Lord of the well, first, the Hobbit has its independent existence and then mm. becomes kind of drawn into the orbit of, of the Silmarillion. Um, and then the Lord of the Rings emerges from that larger mythology and is, and is connected to it. And I think that the Lord of the Rings would not be what it is if it didn't come out of the Silmarillion, because so much of the depth of it is from the way that, you know, he references, you know, you know, the, the, the songs, the poetry, the reference of the history, even though they're not explained in the text, there's a resonance to it that I, I think you can tell that there's there's something there. There's depth. It's not just a flat stage set. It's there's a whole <laughs> there's yeah. a whole other universe beyond that. And I think that not to mention the languages, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> that is part of what makes the Lord of the Rings just literally inimitable um, because <laughs> he he does something so astonishing. He creates an entire universe of, of languages, languages that actually work, mind you, not, mm -hmm. you know, not just a glossary of, of funny made up words. Um, but he, he was a linguist. He, cre he created languages. He took them <laughs> their stages of linguistic evolution, according to the laws of phonology. I mean, that's, yeah. that's mind boggling. It really <laughs> it's the amount of genius operating in Tolkien is just off the charts. And so mm. we have this, this depth, and I think that we owe a great deal to the Silmarillion, even if it's only for what it gives to the Lord of the Rings and backwardly, you know, in hindsight to to the Hobbits. Right. Yeah. And I, I come, you know, I, I actually, I had a hard time getting into the Silmarillion. I mean, I love the Lord <laughs> of the Rings and the Hobbit from the instant I, I read them. Yeah, the Silmarillion, it, it, it took me a bit. <laughs> it, it was not instant love let's put it that way yeah. but i come increasingly to realize what what substance we have and of course the the agonizing thing is that we we talk about the silmarillion you know what are we actually talking about and one of the difficulties in you know writing in, in tolkien's modern reading 
mm-hmm. is that there's a published Silmarillion, which was collected and, and assembled by Christopher Tolkien and, and had to involve quite a lot of editing and, you know, combining. Okay. So that's not, that's not exactly what, that's not the book that Tolkien envisioned when he, when Tolkien said the Silmarillion, mm-hmm. he wasn't thinking of the book that we now can buy in, in the bookshop called the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole legendarium of all of the texts, including the ones that he wrote like 27 different versions and never finished any of them. Oh my word. Why, why did you do this to us? Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) so there's quite a lot there. And now, I mean, I think it's really a, a, a really wonderful thing that we've got, you know, the massive history of middle earth, where we have all of these materials meticulously put together, absolute treasure trove for scholars, not exactly readable, for, for readers. I think it's really wonderful that Christopher, you know, managed to also pull out some individual volumes in addition to the Silmarillion. So we have Baron and Luthien. So we have, you know, the fall of Gondolin. Um, and again, you know, they're, they're adaptations and pulling things together of his, of his father's work, but they managed to give us something closer, I think, to what his father was envisioning as the Silmarillion. Um, and they're, they're beautiful. You've got to come your head into a different place. So this is not the Lord of the Rings, you know, part two. This mm. is something completely <laughs> different. And and this was actually something that struck me when I was writing Tolkien's Modern Reading, mm. is that part of the reason, I think, that we often, you know, many people, I think not just myself, find the Silmarillion a little bit hard going, mm. is that Lord of the Rings has so conditioned our expectations for fantasy yeah. that we don't kind of know what to expect, but then mm-hmm. I, I was really fascinated to, to, to read um, Lord Dunsany yes. and to see how popular Dunsany's tales of Pagana were. And yes. that in many ways is remarkably similar to the Silmarillion in what he was doing in his mythology. I mean, not anything like his complex, but mm. it's in the ballpark. And yep. that was a hugely popular. People read it. It had major reviews in the Times. You know, mm-hmm. it was a big deal. We don't think about that today because it's all been, you know, past and, and we don't, mm-hmm. it's, it's not popular now. But if you mm-hmm. go back to Tolkien's time, when he was trying to get the Simulian published, he could point to Dunsany, who had been published by, by you know, the, the same publishing family that that he was now working with. And that was somebody who was doing something not totally dissimilar that had been hugely popular. So I think that if the Silmarillion, this is hypothetical, but mm-hmm. if the Silmarillion had been published when Tolkien wanted it to be published, mm-hmm. I think the readership of the time would have got it much mm-hmm. more than they did when, when Christopher brought it out. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And do you think that situation is changing a bit, especially with the release of um, with these sort of great tales volumes, which collect some of that history of Middle Earth material and unfinished tales material, um, and uh, sort of package it much more in a much more accessible form. Um, for example, the uh, the Children of Hurin, which is more or less a a readable, um, uh, you know, start to finish uh, novel. Um, the other ones, unfortunately. Uh, are not simply because Tolkien did not, of course, write quite enough, but but they're still more accessible than than, for example, trying to plunge into the history of Middle Earth, um, and perhaps perhaps more accessible to some extent than just reading the Silmarillion as well. I, d- I don't know what you'd think about that, but yeah, I mean, I, I think so. 
Um, mm. I, I think in a way, you know, I just, I commend, I, I think some people are, are for some reason annoyed at the publication <laughs> of these many different poems. And I say, mm. if you don't like them, don't buy them and don't read them. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's really that simple. Um, I think they're really doing a great service because mm. they do offer different entry points in, um, and Tolkien himself conceived of his legendarium as being big, vast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it is helping kind of almost to win back the context that got lost, you know, between the 30s and, you know, the 80s, mm-hmm. basically, and helping people <laughs> almost develop a taste for it. And I think that's great because it's really, really good stuff. And I personally think that. You know, if we can if we can attribute any flaw to the Lord of the Rings, it's almost that it was too good <laughs> because it had, because it had such almost a black hole gravitational effect on all other fantasy for decades. Mm. You know, we get so much imitation, and much of it is just so wretched. Um, yeah, yeah. You know that it had an effect. Now it's coming out of it. There's lots of different mm. kinds of now um mm. and i think mm. that's great um mm. and in part it helps us to finally appreciate tolkien again for what he is and not for all of the yeah. sort of medieval you know imitations of him and now i think we've got a place where people maybe are ready to appreciate the kind of diversity of his imaginative vision yeah i think that's that's a really wonderful observation and just put, put me in mind of um the game of thrones phenomenon and, and then of course the I remember as the TV show was coming out, um, obviously the, the, the books uh, first, well, not finished, of course, but um, <laughs> when the TV show was first coming out, I remember reading quite a few articles online about how Martin has surpassed Tolkien, Martin has replaced Tolkien. There was even one saying, well, you know, we should just, we should forget about Tolkien and Martin's the new the new thing. Um, <laughs> that moment seems to have passed. I don't, I don't see those sorts of articles anymore. But um, yeah, I... I <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested in your take on sort of you mentioned a lot of imitative fantasy which which is true but but then you also get this reaction against Tolkien for well perceived at least political reasons or perhaps religious reasons or for other reasons um of course Michael Moorcock being a famous example but also Martin himself to an extent I mean he he says what I consider quite silly things about Tolkien's fiction which betray complete misunderstanding like um well we don't know anything about aragon's tax policy for example as though that were something that was salient to understanding what tolkien is doing um it says this completely you know with a straight face apparently um but my, my feeling is that um that the moment for sort of martin's grimdark fiction take on on fantasy is sort of past I, i'm not sure what you would um, if you would agree with that, but um, it certainly seems like Tolkien is, as you mentioned, perhaps coming back into the zeitgeist a little bit. Yeah, and um, I hope I hope you're right that mm. that, that Martin Grimdark <laughs> mode is moment is passing. Um, I, I think I think it has an expiration date, and if it isn't already passed, it it will pass. Um, mm. Mm. What I and the reason I think that is that ultimately Martin's the whole Game of Thrones thing is actually also deeply imitative of Tolkien. It's mm. imitative of, by opposing him mm. Um, mm. because it's mm. basically saying everything that Tolkien believes 
I'm going to take a medieval-ish setting. I'm going to take the trappings of Tolkien, which are the least important part. Mm. And I'm going to, in those trappings, I'm going to try and tell a story that, you know, has all the things that are opposite to Tolkien. You know, Tolkien, you know, you know, has his characters be sort of chaste and respectful. I will have sex, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. um, you know, uh, and, and it's silly to say that there's no sex in Tolkien's books mm. because his characters have children. They marry, they have children. Yeah. There's obviously, but he's, he's restrained about how he puts it in. Mm. Mm. Uh, he, his restraints is, is not a sort of Martin-esque virtue. Um, <laughs> no. And, you know, and this, and, and even more fundamentally, um, you know, Tolkien's, world is one that has objective morality it's it's a one in which goodness and evil are more complex than some critics would say but that they're real they're it's meaningful bad. and and i think in in martin's world it's it's trying to be the opposite well what do we have if we have a world of you know of moral relativism and and i think so so ultimately you know game of thrones is, is kind of an anti-tolkien um mm. and i in the same way that Philip Pullman's um, um, Amber Spyglass books are an anti-Narnia. And I think for the exact same reason, although both of them are, you know, competent writers, sometimes good writers, you know, at, at various mm -hmm. points, mm -hmm. I think that neither Pullman nor Martin will ultimately be read in a hundred years. And, you know, except by people doing doctoral dissertations. Um, <laughs> and, and Tolkien and Lewis will be. Because they're not reacting to a, a you know a particular moment, they're speaking you know more timelessly. And part of being timeless is actually, you know, Tolkien is timeless not because he's rejecting the modern world, but because he sees it, he sees the past, and he partakes of both, and he does his own thing. Um, and I think that that kind of um, you know that kind of timelessness is one that isn't um, reactionary at all. And I think Martin is much more reactionary than, than Tolkien in that respect. Mm, mm, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that's, yeah, I hope that's right too. Um, I must say, I, I, I have read the books up to where they are, the Martin, Martin's books, but um, I don't think I'm going to be very motivated to, to finish off that series if it ever, if it ever does actually, um, get completed which at the moment is um still up in the air as it were um that might be the I most guess, yeah that's right yeah exactly yeah um i guess just to to finish off I, I wanted to bring it back around to something you you write in in the book um or a discussion that you that you that you present around the romans um and tolkien's views of the romans and and I want to bring this up because I, being an archaeologist, I've uh, studied Roman archaeology, and this this um, this particular part of the book was was obviously very interesting. Um, and you sort of make the case that the Romans are perhaps one um, inspiring or inspiration, one one part of Tolkien's inspiration for uh, for the orcs and the sort of rapaciousness of of Mordor and, and Sauron civilization. So I wonder if you could just um, sort of speak to that a little bit. And also, um, and, and you link that uh, to, to William Morris's um, own perspective of, of the Romans. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, how, how important you think that that, um, that influences on Tolkien's development of, of the orcs and, and Mordor more generally. But I'm also curious about 
and, and I know you don't talk too much about the Numenorians in the book, but there is a sort of a, um, in some of Tolkien's Second Age material, there is development of, um, for example, um, Eldarion and Arendus in Unfinished Tales, this idea that the Numenorians become gradually morally bankrupt as they become more imperially ambitious. Um, so I'm wondering if you might see some connection with with, uh, with the Romans there as well. But I mean, long question, <laughs> but um, yeah, I was just very interested in that discussion. Well, this is this to me was a, a really a fascinating puzzle um, mm. with with this, and my my suggestion of a connection between the, the orcs and the Romans um, is is just that it's a venturing of an idea. And, you know, mm. I I, won't, I would like it to be picked up and to see if other people can run with it because if it actually is a if I've discerned a, a, a true connection, then it should bear fruit in being able to better understand what Tolkien's doing in his work and how this how this sheds light um, on it. I, I think it. I think it is a good connection. Mm. Um, and what got me started on that was this very puzzling remark that Tolkien makes. Um, this is often quoted, which is that he says um, that there's that the Lord of the Rings um, owes more to William Morris um, and to his Huns and his Romans, as in the House of the Wolfings or the Roots of the Mountains, than it does to um, the landscape of, of the Psalm. Um, and the, the connection between the Lord of the Rings and the, the great war landscape, um, is something that is definitely, you know, a, a real connection. It's been very fruitfully explored by lots of scholars, mm. um, but it fascinated me to see how seldom anybody paid any attention to the other half of the quote where they mm. you know, talks about his debt to William Morris and his Huns and Romans. Now, the interpretation of what he means by that remark um, is, is is debated, and I and I enter into that a little bit. And there are there are some different legitimate ways to to interpret that. Exactly, what was he pointing to? Was it general influence or was it the landscape? Um, but actually, either way that you interpret it, whether you're talking about the, the scope overall of the Lord of the Rings or you're talking about the landscape, either way, he draws a direct connection between. Um, the Lord of the Rings and William Morris and his Huns and his Romans in mm. those two books. And I just thought, well, that's interesting. And, and then re read these two books. And I was really struck by the fact that, you know, the Romans, I would tend to, I tend to think of the ancient Romans as, you know, you know, Caesar and his legions and they're, mm. you know, they magically kind of clean cut, you know, Roman roads, you know, et cetera. <laughs> and, Cleopatra, you know, slightly romantic, you know, sorts of things. Mm. Well, in William Morris's House of the Wolfings in particular, um, the Romans are a thoroughly bad lot. Um, it's mm. the, the, the quote-unquote barbarians um, who are the good guys, you know, fighting off these corrupt invaders, these corrupt invaders from the south, from the mm. south of Europe. Um and there, it just struck me that the language that Morris uses to describe, physically describe, and morally describe the Romans is orcish. I mean, mm. there are so many parallels between the kinds of adjectives and phrasings um, and characteristics of, of, of um, Morris's Romans in the House of the Wolfings and the orcs. And then tracing out interesting little things like just various references, you know, maps and different comments. When it becomes clear that when Tolkien says that Mordor is in the south, 
he doesn't mean the global south. He means the south of Europe. It, mm. it's, it's in the area, more or less, of Italy. And that's really interesting. Um, mm. For one mm. thing, that does complicate the assumptions that people often make about his supposed, you know, racist or colonialist views that, that you know, all oh, the, the, the orcs are from the south of Middle Earth. They must therefore be associated with, you know, people from the global south. Well, no, actually, they seem to be associated with Italians. Um, and, <laughs> and then in other letters, Tolkien, he, he speaks very harshly of the Romans. He says mm. that he would have been on the side of Carthage, Carthage, the North Africans. He would have been on Carthage's side not the Roman side. Like, yeah. That's remarkable. So all these things together started me thinking that, you know, Mordor is based, if we were to map it onto, onto, you know, the, the earth um, as, mm. as he did, actually, he talks about um, that where it is, you know, mapped onto the, the, uh, our map. And it's, it's, yeah, it's in Italy basically. Um, mm. And so I think this gives a sort of a richer insight into his negative portrayal of the orcs. It puts it in a different context. It puts it in a different historical context because you know, he's writing he's, he's writing the Lord of the Rings during the Second World War when you have, you know, Mussolini and, and mm. fascist Italy, um, you know, being quite a problem. His son is, you know, fighting in Africa um, against, you know, against fascist Italy. Tolkien's very anti-totalitarian. He's, mm. he's really very against all forms of imperial domination. Um, and then if you think about the literary connection, you know, if, if he's mediating his orcs through Morris's Romans, um, they're, they're not anymore drawn so much from any particular, you know, human race. They're, they're drawn from a really complex mix of ancient history and literature. Um, so it, it just, it makes the picture of the orcs, much more interesting. And I think it also helps us understand the fact that Tolkien himself never quite figured out what to make of his orcs. Mm. Um, he's, he's till, you know, the very end of his life, he's puzzling over the question of, are the orcs, you know, are, are they, are they persons? Do they have free will? He thinks probably not, you know, but, but what, what actually are they? Were they made? Were they, were they corrupted? He can never quite figure them out and he doesn't have this problem with any of the other races of middle earth um mm -hmm. it's quite clear where all of them come from you know mm -hmm. imagine speaking in 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 middle earth but the orcs the orcs are always kind of problematic and i think that that this is perhaps slightly more understandable if you think that they their imaginative genesis came via william morris because he almost you know got the image has these orcs and then kind of after the fact, maybe realizes, oh, they, they, don't, they don't quite fit properly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I think I was, I mean, I, I found, yeah, your discussion quite convincing. So it'd be fascinating to, um, to see that theme sort of taken up and explored um, more. Even their physical sort of um, descriptions of Morris as Romans uh, bear um, quite a few similarities to um, those of Tolkien's orcs, which you observe, which um, which is interesting. So, yeah, ho hopefully that's something that will be taken up. Because, of course, um, when talking about the Romans in, in relation to Middle-earth, it's usually Gondor that's, that's mentioned as a kind of – and certainly the films take this up, that Gondor is kind of representative of the Romans 
um, in the story, but I think I think you make a good case that it's a bit more complex than that. And I think this this represents really the way that Tolkien's creative imagination worked because he mm. he didn't take things pat. You know, anytime we were suspecting to think that he took X from X source and put it into mm. Middle Earth, we're probably wrong um, mm. because, because he 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 draws from his sources. But even when he acknowledges a source, that he might also acknowledge other sources, like with the Hobbits. You know, the, he acknowledges you know E.A. Wicks Smith's The Marvelous Land of Smurgs and Sinclair mm. Lewis's Velvet. You know, yeah. right, you couldn't really get much more dif- different than those two. Those <laughs> two um, yeah. So I think if we if, if anything comes out of Francis looking at this Roman question, I think it would be to kind of complicate the assumptions that we we very easily make as readers, as critics, um, and I include myself. It's very easy to draw conclusions. Oh, I see this similarity, therefore that's where he got it from. Well, maybe, and maybe he got it from there and five other places. And to what extent were these influences mediated through other influences it, it becomes quite quite a lot more complex and, and more interesting. Yeah. And, and of course, source studies have long been sort of the, a staple of, of Tolkien scholarship. And you mentioned a couple of instances in the book where um, <laughs> hasn't ha- where source studies have not been successful, um, to put it mildly. Um, do you think that that's getting more sophisticated um, nowadays? I mean, even Tom Shippey, of course, is, is known for for Tolkien's medieval source or for looking at Tolkien's medieval sources in, in, in a lot of depth. But um, do you think that's getting more, more sophisticated, even in terms of the medieval uh, side of things? Um, or is there still a bit a bit of uh, learning to, to do, <laughs> I guess, on the part of scholars and, and sources? Well, I think in, in terms of Tolkien studies overall, I think we're hugely advanced mm. over, over, you know, past, you know, past years. And there's been such good work, um, mm. And there's been some really good sort of meta reflective work on sources, like Jason Fisher's work on mm. Tolkien sources, excellent volume. You know, there, there's a number, you know, Fisher and others doing really thoughtful considerations of, of the way that Tolkien uses his sources, both medieval and, and well, hopefully I'll contribute to the modern bit. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think that is a huge advance and partly um, I think, you know, the medieval side of Tolkien scholarship has really flourished. There's so much good work, really insightful work um, on the way that Tolkien uses his medieval sources. And I think that one of the ways that's been so fruitful is that people are no longer able to draw the simplistic conclusions because they're seeing the depth and the range of Tolkien's medieval reading and how the different sources interact. And it, you know, it makes you realize, okay, I can't, draw these direct connections for his medieval sources. You know, my argument is, well, you can't do that with his modern sources either. These are also much more rich and, and varied and full, and there's a lot going on here. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think we've made a lot of progress. Now, I, I do think that in the sort of, you know, sort of more popular level scholarship or more popular level writing, maybe done by people who aren't actually Tolkien specialists, but maybe have read, you know, one or two books and are excited about Tolkien, you do still get a fair bit of, you know, kind of simplistic source study because it's so, it's so tempting. It's so easy. Um, <laughs> and, and so you, you, you we're probably always going to have that problem. Um, sure. But I think as a discipline, I think Tolkien studies has faced up to the problems of it. Um, mm. 
Hmm. good and healthy way. And, and yeah, I, I had to, because you know, there's some, some critics who you know, have some quite scathing things to say about source study. And you know what? They're often right. There's some really wretched source studies out there. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I think a few of them in my footnotes. Um, yes. <laughs> and so I had, and so I had to really grapple with that because I had to say, you know, what kind of work am I doing? I'm doing in effect a source study but I want to do it properly. How am I going to engage with it? And so I always set out to try to have this sort of complex view of influence um, and to see what, what was in front of me and not project onto it. Um, and, and that was, that's what I've tried to do and mm -hmm. to try to see the different ways that influence operates, you know, sources versus influences, you know, influences by example or influences by opposition, um, you know, the different ways that Tolkien uses his sources. Um, there's a lot of variety there that I, I think is important to, to kind of bear in mind um, under that larger category of source study. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as I mentioned, your book um, is a great um, entry into into that genre um, amongst many other things. It, um, yeah, it, it's great source study. So, and I, and I think the, the complexity of, of influence, that notion really comes through. So I think, um, I think that's a good place to, to draw things to a close. So, um, so I suppose Holly, just, just in, in, in closing out, where can people sort of find, find you online? And, um, I know the book's available, uh, from, well, it is available directly from the publisher, but also of course on Amazon, um, as well. So, so where can people find find you if they're interested in in other interviews? And I know you've done quite a few, um, and podcasts and things like that. Uh, well, I, I have a website which is mm -hmm. hollyordway dot com. Pretty straightforward. Um, <laughs> and um, and I also have I'm on Facebook and Twitter, um, and that's where I put a lot of my. You can search me there, and that's mm -hmm. where I share a lot of, of these links. Um, and uh, and then as far as getting the book, uh, obviously you can get it through you know retailers like Amazon, um, they're not always, they're a little frustrating to deal with sometimes. Um, and <laughs> mm. you know that actually not just in the U S but also in Europe and in Australia, you, you can get it directly from the publisher. Uh, uh, the word on fire store does have an Australia store and a yep. Europe store and a, and a U.S. store. And if you go to wordonfire.org slash Tolkien, um, that has the link for where you can go. Um, and that also has a couple of interviews that I've done um, on the book. And it also has the whole selection of a number of um, videos that I did um, on location in England, um, talking about Tolkien's modern reading, actually at places that Tolkien mm. lived and, and you know, worked and, and grew up, um, which was great. They're great fun to do. So if anybody's <laughs> interested in seeing, um, seeing Tolkien's, you know, context uh, in, you know, in, in, in the videos, um, they're also mm. on that site. Oh, wonderful! Just out of interest, were, were you able to get to Oxford to see the um, the exhibition at the Bodleian on Tolkien a couple of years back? Yes, yes, I go to England. <laughs> I, I typically go to England you know, every year or twice ah, a year. Wonderful! And yeah. I have done for like the last more than a decade, actually. Um, and uh, and I I was very very glad to have been able to go to the to the Bodleian exhibition, which was fantastic. It was mm. really fantastic. Yeah, it was good. I, I was able to go there myself, actually, which was a much much longer flight from here. But <laughs> but um, it was it was it was great. Yeah, I really really enjoyed enjoyed it. And um, no, it was just such a well put together put together exhibition. I thought I was really impressed. 
But uh, look, thank you so much for coming on. That was really fascinating and, um, yeah, just lovely to talk to you. So, you know, I wish you all the best for the future and um, the next book sounds interesting. So I'll, I'll be looking out for that as well. Um, and I, I assume that will be published by uh, the same press? Yes. Yeah, wonderful. All right, well, as soon as that comes out, I will, I will get that and, and um, dive in. Well, thank you very much um, and... You know, I wish you uh, wish you all the best. All right. Thank you. This has been a real pleasure. So thank you for having me on. No worries at all. All right. Thanks.